This is Robert Trogdon. And this is Kirk Carnot. And this is episode two of Master the Forty. This is a podcast devoted to the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Robert, I'm a little surprised you didn't introduce yourself by your new title. That would be Robert Trogdon, recently profiled in The Guardian. That was quite a trip and a half, especially when Austrians who are working on Jewish journalists read the art interview and contact you about the problems they have in editing. Well, I was I was going to ask if your if your life has changed since that piece came out. So you're getting fan mail from Austria. Fan mail from Austria and um, next step groupies. Well, there you go. Which is why why one gets into textual editing. It brings the babes running, as they say. <laughs> so our second episode is devoted to a very obscure story, 1933's I Got Shoes. But before we get going, I did want to let you know we had some viewer mail. Oh, good. Basically, the question boiled down to this. You guys claim to be experts, but you admit that you have not read all of these stories. I guess, you know, we ought, to, we ought to acknowledge the dirty little secret of this profession, which is most people don't read everything. Their material is so vast that it's almost impossible to have read everything or to really to have reread everything that any of these writers have, have written. If I were going to ask you, how many living people do you think have read all 178 of F. Scott Fitzgerald stories, what would you peg that number at? I would go three. Okay. Those three would be James West, Jim West. Who emailed me and wants to be a guest on this podcast. Probably Jack Breyer. Actually, he has not. Oh, wow. That is the president of the uh, Fitzgerald Society, but he has not read every single one. Possibly Scott Donaldson. Yeah, I, I might go for Scott, who's a legendary figure. I might, I might go with Ann Margaret Daniel too, mm. who's who's a leading Fitzgerald expert. But there is actually another person, and you may not know of her, but she is a fan in the UK. And we just did a profile of her for the F. Scott Fitzgerald newsletter. Her name is Alexandra Mitchell. And she went and she has put together her own homemade edition of the collected short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald. She went and got every single one, got the magazine copies, retyped them, and has bound her own edition. <laughs> Wow. Okay. That's, that's dedication. <laughs> that's, that's more dedication than I have. It makes me kind of feel bad that I'm not that dedicated, you know? I, I have a scanner. I have a book scanner, a magazine scanner, so I don't have to retype things. But, you know, it raises an interesting question, and I think you and I are very similar in that we came into this profession uh, 30 or so years ago, and we were not encouraged necessarily to, to specialize. And so, whereas some folks would spend their entire lives devoted to one canto of Ezra Pound or something like that, 
we were really taught to be as diverse as possible. And the flip side of that is you you don't know everything. I mean, your entire career is a journey in learning stuff. You know, it's kind of like being a Robert De Niro fan. Name me a Robert De Niro movie. Godfather Part Two. See, that's one of five that I bet comes to mind right at the top. Mm-hmm. But I doubt even Robert De Niro can name every single movie he's ever been in. Right. Did you ever see the movie he made with Sylvester Stallone where they're washed up fighters? I know of it. I did not I did not see it. I couldn't I couldn't even name you the title of that movie. Uh it's yeah, it's not the Great White Hope or, you know. Yeah. You know, it's not Raging Bull too. <laughs> Rocky meets Taxi Driver. So, in that in that same vein, the story we pulled randomly from the bowl today 1933's I Got Shoes, that is not uh, that is not Babylon Revisited too. I would say. It is our first Saturday Evening Post story, though, which is the magazine he is most closely associated with. Yeah, and it's at the end of his, uh, nearing the end of his association. I, I actually counted, and this is the eighth to last story he did for the Post. And, and you can kind of feel why. I mean, it's always difficult to tell. Do we project onto these stories the where they are in his magazine career, or do we honestly perceiving the faults of the story? When you know it's written in 1933, and it's written in the midst of when he is really finishing the composition and revising of Tender is the Night, which is such a long and difficult gestation and composition process for Fitzgerald. It makes some sense why this is not necessarily the well-wrought urn that, say, Babylon Revisited is or The Rich Boy or Winter Dreams is as well. And the other sense that I get from this story and the reading of this story is that Fitzgerald is in some way reacting to the depression. Very difficult yeah. time. And it's it's Fitzgerald trying to write about poor people or people struggling and not doing very well at it. He w- he was always a little too above the hot struggles of the poor, as 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 Gatsby says. It's a mess of a story in a lot of ways. He doesn't know exactly where to tell the story, like what point of view to adopt, what character to focus on. If we were creative writing teachers and we would use this story we would say it breaks the cardinal rule which is it has it it floats freely among perspectives i mean just about every character in this story becomes the point of view but the only thing in the story that we never see the story from the point of view of the shoe (laughs) yes which robs us of the opportunity to one day write an article called actually i felt sorry for the shoe you're alluding to uh, the short happy life of Francis McCumber by Hemingway, which does is a third person point of view, but the narrative perspective shifts throughout that story. And that's a fairly successful story. Even you even get the point of view of the lion, but that's a longer story. That's, it's a more fully developed story right. in a lot of ways. And that's one of only two stories yeah. that Hemingway published in 1936 
and so the folk, the you know, Hemingway was able probably to, to devote more time to it than Fitzgerald could devote to this story. Yeah, it's this. This is definitely a story that was written for money because he only wrote three stories in 1933, and this is generally considered the weakest of him. And it, and it, in in the Saturday Evening Post considered it a weaker story because they dropped his rate on it by about $500. He was only paid $2,500 for it. And that was 500 less than the story before it and the story after. So they clearly did not think highly of the story. Had Lorimer died by this point? That would be George Horace Lorimer, who was editor of the magazine mm -hmm. from 1899 to 1936. He was, he was still in charge for uh, another three years. I did happen to pick up a copy of the Saturday Evening Post that this story originally appeared in. Let me hold it up to the microphone for the folks at home. Oh. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's the, the first impression that you get in picking up an issue of the Saturday Evening Post from the, the, the heart of the Depression is really how, how thin they are. I mean, you know, 1920s issues are 200, 300 pages. Yeah, that's almost like a book. Yeah, exactly. And this one's barely cracking. I mean, it's about 97 pages. So they're, they're struggling themselves in, in, in being able to feasibly afford to publish these magazines on a weekly basis, too. Mm -hmm. um, they're still selling it for five cents a copy. And, you know, they're still, they still have two million readers, but there's a significant amount of belt tightening going on in this period. Well, there's the, the advertising is drying up. Yeah, exactly. And, and they, that's that's where you're losing the pages is not not in in stories and articles, but in advertising. And if you don't have the advertising, you don't have the money to pay the rates and the four thousand dollars a story or the six thousand dollars. You're exactly right because you flip through here and the, and it just goes straight from from article to article and story to story. It's interesting to look at who else is in here in this issue because this is about a year after Fitzgerald's name quit appearing on the cover when he was in an issue. And so um, instead, the front cover promotes um, an article by J.V. McAvoy on Sir Henry Detterding, which uh, I guess would would not, in my mind, not, not exactly rocket up uh, uh, newsstand sales. But it does have a it does have a pretty good short story by Marjorie Kennan Rawlings in here uh, called Alligators. And our old friend Joseph Her Hergesheimer has a story in here. I don't think you could print a magazine in the 1920s and 1930s without Hergesheimer's uh, contribution in it. He's all over the place, and I know nothing about him. It's a good thing this isn't a Hergesheimer podcast, because we get more listener mail on that. That, that would be a career to specialize in Hergesheimer. <laughs> isn't, isn't he the guy that Hemingway uh, makes fun of in The Sun Also Rises? Isn't that? Uh, yeah, it's Harvey Stone, where uh, he's, Minken calls him a, 
a garter snapper. That's it. That's it. That's the only thing I have ever known about Hergesheimer that apparently he was a ladies' man. Right. So yeah, so it's and it's always interesting too to read Fitzgerald stories in the context of the post politics because the post was a very Republican, very conservative. It's not a story that celebrates conspicuous consumption by any means, even though the the main character is wealthy. Right. I mean, the one thing that struck me also on reading this story is the the male protagonist. It's a repeat of. Uh, the sensible thing where where the the male protagonist goes to south america to make his fortune and in this case now marjorie's the actress joanna battles as the the reporter livingston is the is back from the brazilian jungle uh the explorer the narrator even makes a joke about a reference to mr livingston i presume which i guess is obligatory well, where Livingston and Battles in the 1920s would have been the hero and the heroine of the Fitzgerald story, right? The the society the debutante and you know the 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 society girl and the society male who goes off in search of adventure and comes back with you know not gold but you know many many reels of uh, movie footage which he sells off to a, a film morgue I guess for stock footage yeah uh, it's the actress who's the the hero one of the exact number of two critical comments on the story that I was able to drudge up one comes from John Irwin who just passed away last December and uh, he did a book a few years ago about Fitzgerald called an almost theatrical innocence. And he says uh, Fitzgerald would make the attraction of stage celebrities for society people explicit in his 1933 short story, I Got Shoes. So, you know, in an interesting way, this story calls back to Gatsby and that whole East Egg, West Egg conflict, because you have someone who has become famous by virtue of being new money, of being uh, a celebrity and their their new their newfound sort of pr- prominence in society uh, really captures the uh, intrigue or the interest of people the East Eggers who should you know or who who really are the the uh, old money or the people who should be sort of the um, cultural obsession and um, I thought that was one of the interesting things about the story is the the whole idea of of modern fame. The other thing about it, and probably the most important theme of the story, I would say, is that we should mention that this story has been republished exactly two times in the United States. Uh, one was in our our man Matthew J. Brookley's uh, collection of the last uncollected stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald called "The Price Was High." And that w- that book came out in what 1979, something like that. Uh, yes, 1979. You win on publishing dates today. There, there we go. Uh, and then just a few years ago, Jim, Jim James West uh, collected it in another sort of omnibus of the the last uncollected stories called "A Change of Class." So it's not a story that's gotten around a whole lot, and um, but. One of the comments Brooklyn points out in it is that it's it's really a story about the difference between professionals and amateurs, and that brings us to the to the biographical context, in in which Fitzgerald was writing. 
Robert, what was going on in his life in 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 the spring and early summer of 1933 when he would have been cranking out this story? Uh, the Fitzgeralds had had decamped from Europe. Uh, Fitz, uh, Zelda had been released from the mental institution, and they were living at La Pa. Uh, that's in Maryland, right? Right, right. Yeah, and, and the reason the Fitzgeralds moved close to Baltimore was uh, so that Z Zelda could have access to uh, Johns Hopkins uh, medical facilities, if if memory serves, and and be close by. Yeah, and La Paz was in a was a big house that was either I think it was right next to the Turnbull estate, which is mm -hmm. how he met his future. He met a child who thirty years later was his biographer, Andrew Turnbull. Uh, who, yeah. who provides a lot of very vivid memories of the Fitzgeralds in the early 30s. Um, in the spring of 1933, Zelda Fitzgerald, she had published her novel, Save Me the Waltz, in that the previous fall. And she had written this play called Scandalabra. And it was being performed, it was in production around this time by a group called the Junior Varsity Players there in Baltimore. And they were an amateur production. It was like the little theater group. And um, the play did not go over well, I would say. You did, you did some research in newspapers.com on the reception of the play. Well, there's two reviews in uh, the, the Baltimore Sun or different editions of the Baltimore Sun, the Evening Sun. And uh, in the first, I mean, they, they in both reviews, on opening night, it was just panned. It was just like, there's too much going on. It's completely irrational. This is like warmed over Oscar Wilde. Um, and uh, and then it was revamped. And supposedly F. Scott Fitzgerald had a hand in the revamping and revision of Scandalabra, but it did not really necessarily improve it uh all that much i had to reread this not too long ago because the fitzgerald review is publishing an article on scandalabra by a brazilian scholar named marcel elanius and um, i was not that familiar with the play so i went back and reread it and it, it, it's a it's a pretty surrealist type of production i would say that the you know it's kind of her version of a beckett play almost i've read that it's an inverted beautiful and damn. yeah it does play off the uh play off that novel the whole premise is this couple has to go out and they're a fairly conservative young couple and they have to go out and be decadent in public in order to inherit their uncle's uh fortune and it's a really bizarre play there's a the stage directions speak but apparently during the performance they did not they did not make the stage directions into a character. And I think that's one of the reasons it just kind of baffled the audience and didn't make a whole lot of sense. But this gets into the whole thing of Zelda's work as a writer yes. and, and F. Scott's reactions because he really did not want her to be doing this. As Scandalabra is being rehearsed and in production, there's an infamous, I guess we would call it, marital therapy session that occurs on May 28th, 1933. One of the great black market documents that floats out there in the, in, you know, in the dark web for Fitzgerald nerds is a transcript of this 
therapy session and and it shows up in different different biographies but apparently there was a, a one of Zelda's doctors named Dr. Rennie went out to Lapa with a stenographer and and the transcript of it runs 114 pages and it is like reading the Scott and Zelda version of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf I mean it is grueling to read this. In fact, we mentioned Jack Breyer, who's the president of the Fitzgerald Society. He's He often says about this document because it gets quoted all the time and it's often quoted as a way of making Scott the villain of this story, but it's quoted all the time. And what he says is imagine the worst argument you've ever had in marriage or in any relationship and it's written down on paper and people can read it the, the the things that you say that maybe you wish you hadn't said and gets recorded for all posterity. And that's really about what it's like. I mean, it, we are at the low point of their marriage. But the theme of professionalism does come up. I just want to read a couple passages to give folks a flavor of the back and forth. So there's a whole section in here where Fitzgerald just attacks Zelda. And he says, uh, I'm a different sort of person than she is. My equipment for being a writer, for being an artist, is different equipment from hers. Her theory is that anything is possible and a girl has just got to get along. And so she has the right, therefore, to destroy me completely in order to satisfy herself. She has certain experiences to report, but she has nothing essentially to say, right? And a little further on, it says, um, he's... this whole thing is about his struggle that he's feeling in being the breadwinner of the family and being a professional. I didn't care whether you were a writer or not, if you were any good. It's a struggle. It's been a struggle to me. It's self-evident to me that nobody cares about anything. It's a perfectly lonely struggle. And then I'm making against other writers who are finally gifted and talented. You are a third-rate writer and a third-rate ballet dancer. If you want to write modest things, you may be able to turn out one collection of stories. For the rest, you are compared to me is just like comparing, well, there's just no comparison. I am a professional writer with a huge following. I am the highest paid short story writer in the world. I have at various times dominated. And Zelda cuts in. And what does she say, Robert? It's Zelda. I will not do the voice. It seems to me you're making a rather violent attack on a third-rate talent then. Why in the hell you are so jealous, I don't know. If I thought that about anybody, I would not care what they wrote. So that's a pretty, that's a pretty bitter uh, sort of back and forth, but it gives you the, the terms in which Fitzgerald is thinking and what Zelda is put on the defensive about. And it simply boils down to the difference between who's, who can claim to be a professional and who can claim to be an amateur. And that's the whole dramatic conflict in the story be- between uh, Livingston and between the actress, Nell Marjorie. And Battles. I mean, Battles is, is ostensibly a, a professional She's a society columnist, but she doesn't really understand. The story starts from her perspective, and it basically is her going to interview this famous actress who's in town. You mentioned that she's kind of the debutante, but she's kind of the, the pastor prime debutante. 
She's she's a faded debutante. That's I mean, right. She, she's she's Blanche Dubois. And so she's got this gig writing a society column, and she comes for this interview. But one of the things that comes up right away is that she has basically spent the night before watching a um, rehearsal or a performance. It seems like a long rehearsal. It's it's she is a, she is attached to this little theater um, as well, and and. Uh, one of the things I did is to look up the little theater movement uh, in the 1920s and 30s. And they, they, they really did blow up in, in this time. The most famous being like the Provincetown Players, which right. you know evolved eventually uh, into something pretty huge and significant. But they were putting on non-commercial sort of more artistic plays than, than would be necessarily found in, in Broadway uh, at that point. But um, sort of Fitzgerald sort of attaches in, in what Battle says that these are people who are dilettantes. Right. Uh, you know, they're they're not really they're 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 more to draw attention to themselves. Uh, but there's been this long rehearsal. There's been some hysterics around two o'clock in the morning. Battles runs into a friend who was also there on the way up, and this is where she gets the whole thing about the shoes. Um, <laughs> And because you can tell she hasn't really prepared for this interview because she has like absolutely no questions to present to, to, to uh, Marjorie uh, at this point. Um, but there's been a, a case where two of the female actresses and a male actress apparently have succumbed to hysterics and sort of big, you don't know exactly what the nature of the altercation was, but it was something that was very dramatic um, in the wrong sort of it, way. Yeah, I mean, it is funny to think about, you know, people who get like uh, when I was reading about that melt, the meltdown, I kept thinking of like, uh, you've probably heard the famous uh, Casey Kasem tape where he is, <laughs> he's trying to do the, the, <laughs> the long distance dedication to the dog. And he, he just, breaks down into this profane rant about how stupid this is but you know and then <laughs> I, was, I was thinking martin yeah, sheen in apocalypse exactly. now where he just you know screaming obscenities at francis ford coppola um because he's having a heart attack you know these things get caught up on tape and people love to listen to them because it's you know it's bringing these artists quote unquote down a notch we've probably all been to community theater productions. Some of them are awesome and some of them are everybody's good as a professional production, but we've probably sat through a few of them that were not professional. I remember still to this day, and it's been over, it's been a good 30, 30 years, a production of Richard II I saw that they decided to set in a South American country in the 1960s. So, and half of the cast decided to have Spanish accents and the other half did not. And it was still one of the most surreal theater experiences I've ever had. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's always amazing to sort of be in the middle of those. I remember years ago, Jack and I going to a, I won't name the city, but a West Alabama uh, city and watching a production of uh, Lillian Hellman's The Little Foxes. And I mean, it was people were dropping lines left and right. And there were these long sort of gasps of dead air. And um, at the end of it, um, because it was it was done for the community, 
the community jumped up and gave everybody a standing ovation. And, right. you know, I mean, standing ovations are kind of obligatory these days, you know, and uh, about the only place I, I, I don't see them happen is when I finish class. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I keep waiting for that. Everyone applauds for right. because it's over with me. Yeah, so they're, they're too busy running out the door. <laughs> I guess what I would wonder is, from your perspective, what is the difference between a professional and an amateur? I think Marjorie has has it partially down that it is keeping your nerve, keeping your calm in the midst of extreme pressure because that's she can't understand these actors falling apart and going in his to hysterics because that is that is not what you do. I think being a professional for her and for Fitzgerald is to to have certain standards of quality, certain standards of equality, because the thing that, that she gets upset about uh, in the conflict, and the conflict is really, in the end, with her and Livingston, because what she's worried about at the end was that this this fight that they have and it's it's all papered over at the end is going to affect her performance later that night that it will tell in her performance later that night and that's what really upsets her i mean livingston is basically a a kind of you know upper crust society guy a kind of, but he's also kind of he, she thinks of him as a dilettante because he's mm-hmm. kind of an adventurer and Apparently he has some sort of film interest where they go to Africa and, and he's able to, you know, to sell some of this film stock for use in, in documentaries and things. But, you know, overall, he's a, he's a guy who has enough money that he doesn't have to work. And, and she's basically sort of rubbing his nose in that and saying, you know, I've, I, I do the grueling stuff, you know, I get, you know, I roll up the sleeves and I, I put in the shoe leather and you don't have to do anything. Well, there's almost a reverse snobbery mm-hmm. on, on uh, Marjorie's part because she is, she is the one character of the three principals who has come up from nothing, uh, who is, who's had this, this very, very precarious childhood uh sort of economically speaking um that the others do not have and and the things that that is held over her head as being the most awful thing is that she has never apparently thrown away a pair of shoes that she's had since she was 10 years old nell's mother raised her on what we would think of as these uh, i guess kind of the summer stock circuit i mean it's it's, you know, it's these professional theaters that would be out there. Touring companies of, of right. successful Broadway plays. I mean, and so these professional players would come to your town and stage these. And but of course, that that business has been drying up for a decade now by the by the early 30s, really for almost 20 years because of the movies. Right. And so there's a whole class of professional thespian elbowed to the margins you know, in the little theater movement, these are rising up as replacements for that sort of professional troupe. So you can understand why there's that tension there. In the 20s and 30s, you get the rise of what, for lack of a better term, highbrow American theater with Eugene O'Neill and Thornton Wilder, Clifford O'Dats with a sort of the more socially 
and economically conscious type of theater that those plays like i don't know anything about secret service or the witching hour the easiest ways but those just to jump in those those are three plays three very popular plays in this period that's Fitzgerald specifically mentions in describing Nell's career. These are all shows that she's been a featured player in. Those had to feel sort of like a middle brow type of theater. Right. I mean, not anything necessarily that you would think of as Hamlet or Macbeth, but you know, a little, a step higher than maybe a vaudeville skit. Yeah. Think of, uh, you know, think of when, when you, you used to get dragged to go see plays uh, and it, it always seemed like it was the same five or six ones that would always be produced. I mean, we were, we were kind of, we kind of came of age during the Neil Simon era and you'd get, right. you know, you'd get community theaters doing the, the odd couple, you know, perpetually and chapter two, yeah, the goodbye girl, exactly. things of that. Yeah. And those have seemed, those seem to have had their day and have just sort of like faded off into nothing now. So just to explain this a little bit, because I think it's a little complicated and maybe counterintuitive. In this period, what we would think of professional theater would have been doing middle brow plays because they're appealing to a broader audience. And that's where um, Nell is working in. And it's the little theaters that start out as amateur productions or amateur troops but also are getting a lot of federal funding during the depression. Um, and that's kind of where you mentioned Clifford Odets. That's where he's coming out of, but they are the uh, experimental troops and they are junior vagabond players are a perfect example. They're doing Scandalabra, which no professional troupe would have done in this period. So it's just a little confusing because we would associate today the amateurs with the Neil Simons and that kind of middle brow, but that's not the way it was in the 1930s. Right. So kind of the center, center part of this story is, is Nell Marjorie telling the story of her childhood and the, of her mother dragging her around Richmond, trying to, trying to find work. And, uh, you know, Nell's, Nell's uh, has cardboard in her shoes and the cardboard gives out. So, I mean, her feet are literally bloody by the, by the end of all this tramping around town, trying to find a job and trying to decide if they're going to go back to New York or if they're going to stay in Richmond. And, uh, you know, I think that bloodiness is, again, Fitzgerald's testament to the sort of struggle or the sacrifice of having to earn your way as a professional, as opposed to just sort of dabbling in it. They walk from the, the hotel where the troupe is staying to a theater manager's office. The, they meet a man who tells them to come back in an hour. They go to the train station to cash in the train ticket to New York. The train has already left, but they have left Nell Marjorie's mother's trunk there. And then they go back to the theater manager's office. And all this time, like the, the shoes that, the, that Marjorie is wearing is getting worse and worse to where by the end of it, she has bloody she has to go to the hospital they they call an ambulance for her right at the very end but the professionalism there is that she does not let her mother know what's happening to her feet until after her mother has secured the position with this richmond theater 
Yeah. She doesn't whine or complain and she suffers for her mother and for her mother's professionalism. You know, after she finishes telling the story, Joanna says, um, I don't understand. Isn't a professional just an amateur who's arrived? Nell shook her head helplessly. I can't exactly explain it. It's something about discipline on duty. We stage children. Why, when we were 15, after director said to one of us, you, third girl from the left, take a dive into the bass drum, we'd have done it without question. And Joanna still kind of objects to this. She says, yeah, but lots of girls have succeeded on the stage without being brought up to it. In other words, lots of girls have come in and, you know, without being trained thespians, I guess. And Joanna, or uh, Nell says, then they've made their struggle and sacrifices and heartburns of wriggling out of their background and in being able to stand all sorts of hardships and tough contacts that they weren't fitted for or brought up for. I haven't made it clear. I wish some clever man were here to explain it. I just thought perhaps you'd understand. And that's when Livingston, sort, who's been eavesdropping in on this conversation, sort of jumps in very defensively because he understands too that this whole story is not just an attack on, on Johanna, on the society girl slash reporter, gossip columnist, but on him as well. Right. I mean, it's the, that, passage about the director telling the third girl to jump into the to the bass drum i kept thinking the 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 connection i made immediately was to rosemary in tender as a night where she makes the dive into that pool of water for shot take after take after take in rome which is what cemented her rep also gave her a, a very bad case of the flu but cements yeah. her as sort of like a professional uh, in in the realm of sort of an, of actors uh, in in the the world of that novel. Yeah, and it's interesting. Around this same time, Fitzgerald writes a piece, a nonfiction piece for the Post. It actually makes him quite a bit of money for a for a for an essay. But it's called 100 False Starts, and he basically mm-hmm. rejects the idea that somehow writing is about charisma or glamour and he basically says that all writers have one or two life experiences and the grind of being a professional writer is going back to that experience over and over again and trying to find some variation on it so it's 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 the professional commitment it's the it's the discipline it's the it's the finding the art in the technique in the commitment to the doing as opposed to the celebrity or the brouhaha that surrounds it. Right. I mean, this is the, this is the point where you get a break in Fitzgerald because if this is the nearly, not nearly the, but close to the end of his association with the Saturday evening post, it's going to be the beginning of his association with Esquire. Right. Which is starting in, in 1933. And it's two years later, Fitzgerald is going to be moving to sort of the semi-confessional autobiographical crack-up essays, which is a major, in my view, a major shift in the, his, his, the way he, he writes, what he writes about. Yeah. One of the lines that we overlooked when we did the Lees of Happiness is there's a there's a reference in there when the main character's husband, Jeffrey, has his stroke and is incapacitated. 
she goes back through their accounts and she says she is, you know, she discovers that they are living short story to short story. And that's really what the Fitzgeralds did for most of their career. You know, 1933, he makes, now this is good money in the depression. He makes $16,000. That That's $20,000 that he, less than he made in 1931. And like I said, he's really living, most of that money is coming from an advance from Scribner's, but also, and I, I was sort of struck by this, maybe you know what this is about. I had never really caught this before. In 1933, he got paid sound rights for The Great Gatsby for $2,200. And I'm assuming that's film rights for a sound version of Gatsby. That would be my, uh, that would be what I would consider because this, the film rights to Gatsby were sold in 26. Right. And there's a, a, there is, there are four film versions of The Great Gatsby one of which the silent version is is lost they they have no one is it's sort of one of those lost silent films is very it, it wildly popular though yeah and it and and it was a very popular uh stage performance too the only mm -hmm. the only thing that's left of that is the trailer that you can see online which is pretty funny to watch uh you know but i i think uh you know Fitzgerald is clearly feeling here that he's um you know he's feeling so defensive and it's interesting because you know the his writing gets more personal in turning toward confessional autobiography and at the same time i think it's fair to say that in in some ways he has always i hate to use the word wine but he has always complained throughout his career about how hard it is to to write or to meet the demands of a professional writer then on a then in ways that that whole sort of lesser class of uh, writers and i don't mean quality wise i mean the ones that don't have the mythology of failure around them people like hergesheimer or anita loose people that could go in and just crank it out but the difference is that art or those works read a lot less personal Right, if that makes any sense. It's it's a it's another facade, and it's it's not as an it's not as obvious a facade, but it is a facade. And right. in those Esquire pieces, which in a lot of ways I think is like you said is is are much less personal than something like Winter Dreams, something like even Bernice Bob's or Hair, um, yeah. Mayday, any of those things, but. You get the, and this is this is right in my wheelhouse, the the professional writer bit, because it's 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 a thing that Hemingway complains about too, and Hemingway's not in any way near the situation that Fitzgerald is in, in in the mid thirties. Hemingway's got a wealthy wife, and you know, and and all that, but Hemingway, when there's a wonderful letter in when a farewell to arms is being published and he's fighting with max perkins about what words can be used and it's a letter that hemingway writes but he doesn't send to perkins about and it's basically revising his contract getting his contract getting a better royalty rate and there's a line in there but now i am a professional writer of which there is nothing lower yeah yeah and we tend to think and and about these that these individuals that 
if if they're not being paid for their writing there's no point for them to write this is what they do for a living no. if you the other thing is you look at the the magazines you look at saturday evening post at this time you look at scribner's magazine at the time one of the individuals who is featured there month after month is william faulkner right and this is this in hollywood is what's keeping faulkner in bourbon and and faulkner had in in a lot of ways he had what fitzgerald didn't i mean he really up until the alcoholism got to him i would say the later 30s but even he would go through patches where he could turn it on you know when he needed a light bill paid he could crank out a story and it would right. it would be a jewel you know i think fitzgerald was kind of torn between two worlds because the flip side of what we're saying about professionalism is think of writers who are able to crank it out relentlessly i mean you know even somebody who's in the literary world like joyce carol oates this is a rap against her she's written a bazillion things name them you know it's kind of like the you know it's kind of like with robert de niro at, at one point he was just cashing a paycheck you know the art the art suffers for being overly productive at some point i will give you a more contemporary example john o'hara Mm -hmm. for Fitzgerald at one point uh John O'Hara I mean we all were it's appointment in Samara and the doctor's son maybe uh, imagine kissing Pete but at one point O'Hara would turn out two novels a year I mean that's getting into uh Grisham territory or you know and these are figures that we w we love to read I mean O'Hara was wildly popular at one point but what happens is is that they become so prolific or so professional right. that at some point you lose that. I, I think our, and, and it may be that we as readers sort of romanticize the creative struggle to produce, but if it just seems like you can put it out that easily, do we value it as much? I mean, it, it, we, as, we as consumers of literature have a responsibility at the same time too. Well, we, we tend to, and, and publishers do this we tend to value novels more so than short stories in which right. in a lot of ways I always think that sometimes a, a well-written short story is harder to write than a novel because you can you can have sort of weak spots in a novel and if it's long enough maybe you don't notice them as much you can plaster uh, it over you can plaster it over things of that nature but uh short stories don't get the the amount of attention that a novel does sometimes but yeah it's it's the fitch uh, o'hara the one thing i remember about o'hara is he composed on a typewriter and he just and that would be his first and only draft yeah there was no revision to it whatsoever uh, what what he put on paper the first time and, and if you look at Fitzgerald's manuscripts and typescripts and his galley proofs and they're just worked over and yeah. over and revised and added to constantly and and what's interesting about Fitzgerald as a reviser is very rarely did he reconceive a plot or a structure like you take a text like this uh, you know, you could arguably sit there and say as a first draft, you have to resolve issues of perspective or point of view, and you have to figure out sort of does the plot overall fit. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But Fitzgerald wouldn't dally with any of that in terms of in terms of revision. He would be like polishing sentences line by line. And it's you almost think of him as like a jeweler, just kind mm -hmm. of 
you know, just, just honing uh, um, again and again. Um, what, that's maybe one of the interesting things about this story is the fact that it goes between all these different points of view. The, the one thing that I really liked in the story was the way it shifts into a story within a story and that, um, that Nell takes over the narration. Um, and so we have within a third person story, we go into this monologue of her, of her telling Johanna the story of, of being a child. It reminds me of that scene again in Gatsby where all of a sudden you slip into um, uh, Jordan, Jordan Baker. Yeah, yeah. Telling, about, telling about Gatsby and Daisy. And, uh, now, yeah, that's, that's a Conrad thing. That's, that's, yeah. that's Heart of Darkness. That's Lord Jim, you know, coming on. And he does that several times in tender is the night where he mm -hmm. will have one character sort of take over and it's not a told story in the sense that it's in quotation marks or whatever it's not a part of dialogue it's just kind of a it's it's almost like a monologue inserted into a story and so i, I like that experimental quality that that sort of seemed to me it was a little different for a saturday evening post to slip into that sort of sort of technique right we do have a mandatory happy ending story here, though, where Livingston and, and uh, Nell overcome their conflict at the end. And uh, I was wondering what you thought of that. Well, the, the you know, when she is able to to pass on notice is uh, uh, this wonderful thing about f fiction. You notice that your maid has the same size feet as you do. And so um marjorie notices that her shoes are a little bit better you know long in the tooth suggests giving them to the maid and then she just can't do it and then livingston who has made it all the way to the lobby after storming out calls and and they are reconciled and marjorie is able to give up her these old pair of shoes to her maid yeah. um I feel in a way that we have to tell the people what happened and, you know, to keep, to keep our listeners uh, active. I thought it was, it's necessary that if you have to have the happy ending. You have to have the couple get together at the end. Yeah. I mean, that's just the, but there's, whereas, and I keep coming back to uh, the sensible thing. There's a bittersweet quality to the union of the, of the, of the, two protagonists in that story this is just it doesn't seem like it's earned necessarily it's it's right you know that Nell tells a story to to battles in Livingston and she sees that it that it's slightly ridiculous on her part to you know to to keep these shoes keep these mini trunkfuls of shoes you know it's it's almost uh, you get the image that it's like the end of the Raiders of the Lost Ark, where there's just a warehouse where there's just crates <laughs> and crates of old shoes. And their faces melt when they flip open the trunk of shoes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, Livingston, but Livingston gives gives in. He He is the one who compromises. He is the one who... Is so proud of himself for for selling the film to this uh, film morgue, as he says, and and decides that it's much better to live with her than to live without her. Right, right, and to work 
I mean, there's a whole discussion in there about work. So you get the sense that the society guy has now found his calling through her. I mean, he's, he's not going to be a sort of hanger on or a, you know, he's got a purpose in life now. But did he, Um, did he not have a purpose in life beforehand? I mean, he's an, he's an explorer. Well, I have to say, you know, and, and then when I've, figured out the chronology I, I realized it didn't work but i i kept wanting to read him as a shot at hemingway mm. but hemingway had not gone to africa yet when this story was written no the way the story forces this life-changing moment on nell uh it it does seem a little uh, gratuitous to me because i do think there's a value in her uh, appreciating what her mother did for her and and Maybe maybe she is become becoming sort of like an episode of Hoarders where all these shoes are <laughs> <laughs> piles and piles of shoes. But, you know, that's that's learned behavior and it's very difficult to break. Well, for the the longest time, the thing and you're, you're probably the same way the, the the thing that I had the hardest time giving up was books. Yes. And and at a certain point you have to go, I have too many books I need to get rid of these. I need to get rid of some of these books because there's just not room anymore in my office or my offices for these books. And part of you is, is especially if you're like an English professor and you go, I need all of these books. I don't know exactly when I'll need Pierce Plowman anymore (laughs) now that I'm no longer in graduate school and no one can ever... So no one can ever make me take a medieval British literature course again, but, uh, but you, you have to do it. We have a shelf out in the hall where I'm sitting right now where uh, senior faculty reach a point in their life where they basically just dump all of their books they don't want out on the shelf out here. And it's, it's, I, I had to send out a memo not too long ago saying, it's okay to put your books out here, but this is not, don't put your coffee maker out here. Don't put your old pencil sharpeners <laughs> out here. You know, this is not a, this is not a trash can. The idea is that we're passing these books along and hopefully somebody will come up, come and pick them up now. About half of my books are from uh, a bookstore in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where uh, I would go on trips home and I would purchase these Hemingway Fitzgerald Faulkner books, scholarly books on those, and invariably they'd be from Joe Flora's office or or Linda <laughs> Wagner Martin's office. And I think I've told them both. It's like I got a lot of your books, you know, you know purchased up. That's funny. I used to go to a place outside of my uh, grand grandparents in uh, Central Indiana. It was called uh, Half 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 Price Books or Half Point Books or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was very weird out in the and now this is in the 90s, long before the internet, because the internet has changed how it used to be when we were, you know, fresh in the profession. You couldn't get any, you couldn't get any information without having books. And if I weren't near a library, I would go through these panic attacks, like I, I can't do my job. Um, and so I would pick up books at all of these half-used bookstores. And, and I would go out to this one and it would have, you know, it had a lot of theory books. I mean, it was basically a lot of people from Bloomington unloading stuff, but I would get things just on the premise that somewhere down the line in 15 years, I might need this. Right. And of course you never do. You never do. You never do. 
now you can just go to Google Books and look it up. So, all right, last thing we need to talk about is the title of the story, which uh, I find fascinating because I, I never really realized this, but the title of the story makes reference to an African-American spiritual, probably better known to most people as All, All God's Children. And it had already, by the time this was written, been used for the for the name of a uh, famous Eugene O'Neill play called uh, All God's Children Got Wings. But the very fact that Fitzgerald would uh, help himself to the title of uh, African-American spiritual raises a lot of kind of tricky issues, I think. Very much so, because it's Fitzgerald's not one known for, for his delving into African-American life and experience. Yes, he's not not necessarily on the socially progressive side, we might say, and it's it's always been one of the biggest challenges, I think, to being a Fitzgerald scholar is to is to uh, is to accounting for his uh, racial attitudes. So we do have an African American maid in the story who becomes the inheritor of the shoes, and all I can think is he's using that title ironically the end that JC the maid is the one that's got the shoes and I can't tell if that's sort of a it almost feels like to me he got to the end of the story and he was vaguely aware somewhere that there was this African-American spiritual out there and he was like well screw it there's a funny title it's almost like an inside of the joke to me well uh, there's variations of the lyrics because there's also in the Marx Brothers duck soup there's a moment when Fredonia has declared war and there's a big sort of musical dance number and the the Marx Brothers all get banjos and and they sing I got bones you got bones all God's children's got bones yeah you know which is and the the variation we have is I got shoes you got shoes all God's children's got shoes and in fact we uh if if there weren't this pesky thing called copyright we would be having all kinds of fun with different versions of this song. I made a list of some of the people that sang this song before. You know, you and I were enjoying the rendition by Johnny Cash done in the early 60s, which is just a phenomenal, fun version of it. It was recorded by the Fisk Singers in, in uh, 1909. It's known by a lot of different titles and, and as recently as as uh well i'll just read a few of the folks that have done it uh louis armstrong uh the cotton belt quartet in 1926 cotton pickers quartet 1931 uh elton payne's jubilee singers uh, 1923 the earliest version i could find under the title i got shoes is by edna thompson thomas excuse me edna thomas 1928 Still in copyright, unfortunately. Uh, Sweet Honey and the Rock did a version. Uh, the Jordanaires did a wonderful version uh, in 1960. Probably my, my favorite version, and I wanted to torture you with this so much, is by Veggie Tales. Oh, God. <laughs> or old cucumber you know? you, yeah you have not lived until you've heard the veggie tales version um i did find a version of this online however on youtube and so we're going to give a flavor of what this gospel version would sound like and this is by a youtube gospel singer named randall nunn he's actually from alabama believe it or not and just to give you an idea of 
what this song would have sounded like. I got you, you got you, all I got you, they got you. When we get there, we're gonna put on a shoe, walk all over, walk all over, walk all over God's heaven. I got a crown, you got a crown. All I got is you, they got a crown. When we get to heaven, gonna put on a crown. Walk all over, walk all over, walk all over God's heaven. He's really good. He's really good. Phenomenal talent. I really love that. <laughs> I tell you, I could live on that those bass lines like that. You know, I I kept I kept picturing you delivering a delivering your next conference paper and me in the background just going boom boom boom. boom, boom. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about Hemingway and punctuation, and Kirk is going to beatbox That's behind right. me. That's so. right, the human beatbox. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's interesting that uh, I've not seen anybody talk about the the title of it being borrowed by. Uh, being borrowed from an African-American spiritual. So I think it, it really does add an interesting cultural layer to it, especially when we end with an African-American maid being, on, being the recipient of, of her uh, employer's uh, charity. Mm -hmm. has, it, has much been done on Fitzgerald and African-American culture? Really, no. Uh, there's a guy of named Michael Nolan, who is a board member of ours, oh, yeah. who's probably done the best work. He did a book called uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald's Racial Angles, and it's all over the place. Uh, I had talked to, to a couple people about trying to do a book the, of essays specifically about Fitzgerald and race, and it basically boiled down to a lot of the people that would be most highly qualified to do that, people like Chris Messenger at the you know, uh, at Chicago. They, they kind of hesitated to do it because they just didn't think that an, a book a book like that would w work against his benefit. It would pro there would not be much positive ultimately that we could say about it. So, you know, it, it become like I don't know if you saw a few weeks ago when they did uh, the, the New Yorker did an article about Flannery O'Connor, and mm -hmm. uh, came out with dis the discovery of some pretty uh, grim racial commentary and letters of hers. And, um, you know, there's a real anxiety when issues like that break in the study of an author about, especially in the contemporary environment, how that's gonna affect their status. So, you know, I think there's a lot that should be done, but whether, whether we can do it in a way that is positive, both for the history of African-American culture, but also that doesn't, that, that is, uh, beneficial to Fitzgerald studies that really remains to be seen. It points to the fact that aspects of African American culture in the 1920s and 1930s were ubiquitous in mainstream American culture through through the music, and I think that's that's sure. where Fitzgerald is probably getting this. I, I, don't, I don't think it's like in a deep immersion when he's in Montgomery, Alabama, um, visiting yeah. Zelda and Zelda's family. Yeah, no, but he's very aware, especially 
in those early 20 stories, you know, all of the dances, the black bottom and, you know, a lot of the music that's being referred to, he's very aware of African American music. It's just the way that he he's not celebrating it, I think, in the way that, uh, you know, other writers would, uh, you know, Carl Van Vechten or people like that, even Faulkner. Faulkner has a lot of blues illusions in his work. Mm -hmm. So it's it's just a different uh different sort of a take a full you know fitzgerald was at the end of the day a high culture guy he was uh very much a um i hate to say an elitist but he essentially was so even though he draws a lot from popular culture he's not willing to necessarily embrace it right right he's not slumming he's not slumming like every now and again hemingway slums yeah exactly exactly yeah all right. Well, uh, we've uh, kind of reached the end of our time here, and uh, I was—we like to always end this in these episodes by deciding on a scale of one to ten how many Zeldas we would give this story. So, what would be your rating be here, Robert? I, I think I gave—I uh, would give it probably six and a half Zeldas. Oh, okay. Um, it's a bit of a problem with the execution, uh, but as far as you know, Fitzgerald attempting to move in a in a new direction um, a little bit more. And if 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 we do view this story as as a sort of Zelda slamming story, then you have to you know you can't give it that too many Zeldas, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. in that in that case. That's interesting. I was totally prepared for you to come out with like a two or a three, given given how tough you were on Lees of Happiness. I'm going to save that if we if we pull out Philippe Count of Darkness. There you, you go. Know, there, there you that go. Might, that might, or Shaggy's Morning. You know, we might we might be in negative territory then. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's actually a better story than Lees of Happiness. I think, I think it is too. I think, unfortunately, because of where it falls in the biography, that we're prone to not take it as seriously as we want to. I would probably go with six and a half too. I think the theme of celebrity uh, is fascinating in it. I think you could do all kinds of cultural, you know, analyses of the history of celebrity to tie around. I think the history of the little theater versus the, you know, uh, touring companies would be a fascinating angle on it. I'm not entirely prepared to uh, entertain a uh, article about the history of shoe manufacturing and it, but, <laughs> but you know, I could be persuaded. But, um, and then I think just the fact that it has the, t the title of an African-American spiritual really to me raises and makes it a much bigger curiosity than I would be if, if I were to call this story, the, um, you know, footwear or something like that. So, <laughs> so we are in agreement that this is about a 6.5. Um, what was your favorite moment in the story? What was your favorite scene? Uh, my f favorite is the initial meeting between battles and Marjorie when battles cannot convey her excitement about the actors falling to pieces and marjorie just having no conception of of how a professional actor does this right right you know would would go through that and just and battles is is a very dense character and and dense by the like she just cannot see anything except from her point of view she doesn't understand why 
the clerk the at the hotel doesn't know who she is yeah and you know she is like the proto karen uh, of, <laughs> of, of of american literature that's but that's I, I like that exchange uh between the two uh, the, yeah. the, you know the, the and marjorie's story about um you know the the visit to the uh richmond theater uh to get work was yeah. good as well there's a there's an unspoken irony in the story that um that he is basically sort of mocking um gossip colonists as unprofessional writers as well and yet mm-hmm. within four years the last relationship of his life will be with sheila graham who was a famous hollywood gossip columnist so it uh you know you always want to be careful who you knock in uh in your fiction because you may end up uh in circumstances with that very type of person afterwards exactly i would say my favorite part probably is that interpolated story with about the about the scene from childhood i i like that technique i like the fact that he shifts out of dialogue and is it's really is presented as a story within a story and i think i think i think nell is a is a great character i mean i love kind of her uh i love her professionalism i like i like a character who will stand up and say you know this what we do you know, whether it's this podcast or the academic work that we do, that it is work, you know, it's labor. And, um, you know, I know you share with me as, uh, as a department chair that, uh, you former, know, former, former uh, department yes. chair, I'm sorry, I, for, I forget that you have escaped the bondage. <laughs> um, but the teaching is professionalism, too. Right. And, and we can, you know, we can look as eccentric as we want but at the end of the day you know that we should be held to to standards and what and what that means so i like that theme i wish it weren't quite so anti-zelda you know i i think he's you know but given the circumstances of their marriage at this point it's it's probably inevitable so the other way we end every other every show is to draw one uh draw a new story out of the uh out of the magic bowl so i carted the magic bowl all the way on my commute today and I am dipping in here and let's see close my eyes and pull one out and we have oh okay well, this the okay here we go so now the real work starts uh we have drawn mayday oh wow great excellent mayday probably I'll ju- we'll just end this show on one of Fitzgerald's more obscure short stories saying mayday is certainly one of the top 10 short stories he ever wrote. And uh, thank you again for doing this, Robert. Uh, Thank you for having me. This is fun. All right. We'll see you next time on Master the 40. Oh!